Okay, uh, so today we're talking with Joe about their activism and what's brought them to the point in their life when they're willing to get arrested to, you know, to save to save us from extinction. So hi, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about where you come from, what you do, what you were doing maybe two or three years ago? Well, I'm 19, so two or three years ago I was still in high school, and my plan back then was very different from where I'm at now. I grew up in Chilliwack, which is a small town, kind of an hour and a half out of Vancouver. Um, and I wanted to go to university, I wanted to get my master's, maybe even my PhD, I was really into biology, wildlife conservation, that's what I really wanted to do. Tell us in particular, like, what moment it was when you decided that you had to step away from your studies to take direct action to, I'm assuming, save our planet. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I'd kind of fallen into a bit of kind of blissful ignorance, I guess, for a while. I, I went to university for a year and I was doing that. And I, kind of, I knew what we were headed toward because I was studying science. And you know, when I looked at the reports, I saw that and I believed it and I understood it. But it's really easy to block that from your mind because it's not, it, it's just so unbelievably terrifying <laughs> that I don't think anybody fully knows how to properly deal with it. So I had blocked it. Um, and yeah, I was just feeling really hopeless when it came to that, so I just didn't think about it. And then after the summer, I, I was working on a contract for some wildlife conservation work, and when that ended, I was able to go out to Fairy Creek for the first time. And that was kind of the first time I was involved in direct action and realized that I could do something. I didn't have to just sit and pretend like nothing was happening. There was still something I could do. And that was really eye-opening for me. That was the first time I didn't feel hopeless and powerless in this fight, basically, in my entire life. Right, and that's a lot of what I'm hearing from people in this movement is that they've come here out of a way to deal with climate grief and the depression that it causes and the feeling of futility that we have when we're just looking around at you know, events like heat domes and floods and giant barges just being like <laughs> thrown up on the beach that no human-made machine can even remove. You know, this, this rebellion of nature. Tell us a little bit about your first time getting arrested. Tell us what that was like. So the first time I was placed under arrest was out at Ferry Creek. Um, I was in a trench there. In a trench, what? Describe that for... For us, what it's yeah. like, because it's quite an in, it's a really interesting contraption. So there was a big, deep hole kind of built across the road, and then two people laying on either side of it. So I was in one side, and then at the bottom, there's this, it's called a sleeping dragon. It's like a big pipe, like metal pipe that you stick your hand into and lock into the bottom. Um, and generally, then the police would have to extract you so that they can fill in the hole and go through. But what they did for me instead was cover me up with... Uh, like a thin thing of plywood and build a road around me while I was still underground. Um, and like while I was in there, I couldn't really hear, like I couldn't see anything because it was dark and I was underground and I couldn't really hear much other than the... So they put the plywood over the hole so you couldn't see? Yeah. Um, 
I couldn't really hear anything except for the machinery, and then I'd hear like rocks falling occasionally, but I didn't really know what was happening out there until I was able okay, to. So like, tell us how old you are again. Uh, I I would have just turned 19 so like you, a month before so this. this. Is what, this is, <laughs> okay, okay. So this is the this is their strategy to deal with you know basically a a child you know yeah. not a child but very. Very, very, very young. Okay. When I was able to see the size of the rocks that had fallen down, like just onto the plywood over me, um, kind of the next day, that was pretty eye-opening for me. Because when I was, I was in there, I was scared. Yeah. But I didn't really know what was happening. And then after that was when I could kind of process, like, wow, that was, that was kind of dangerous what just happened. <laughs> they, they, I didn't end up getting charges for it. They didn't end up taking me in. Well, I guess it's enough that they almost killed you. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Sorry, this is making me, this is actually making me very emotional that this is, you know, what we're doing to, to our kids. You know, I'm a parent of a 17-year-old yeah. and a 20-year-old, and I teach high school. And, you know, the powers that be always tell us that, you know, the youth are the ones that are going to get us out of this mess. The youth are the ones that, you know, it's your, you know, we, we trust you and we, you know, we want you to be successful and we want you to, you know, succeed in life. And we're, we're allowing our youth to be put in, in situations where they could be killed, crushed by a rock um, because industry wants to clear our forests. Clear our forests for money. Now you're off. You look. You see. Holy shit! I just about got killed by these giant rocks. I can't believe our police do this. And then what happened? Yeah, I think there were like seven of us that day who were arrested and taken down and just dropped in Port Renfrew. No charges. We weren't processed or anything. Just took us and dropped us off. Uh, it was pretty rough because the people I was arrested with, um, one of them was the woman who had been dragged out of her car and had just had all her things destroyed. And then the other was um, a young girl, probably about my age, who had been um, in one of the trenches and hadn't been able to lock in. And I remember she was just like crying so hard and like she had a scrape on her face. And like, I, yeah, so it was just, it had been a really brutal morning. <laughs> right, okay. Okay, so this is fairly horrifying. So police are, you know, putting young people in danger and then just taking them to the police station and letting them go. It wasn't even the police station. It was like the Port Renfrew Community Center, like post office library thing. They just drop <laughs> us off in the parking lot. And they do that so often because the like most of the arrests or a lot of the arrests just were like called catch and release. They didn't do them properly. They didn't read you your rights or process you or anything like that. And the people at the community center there, they'd come out sometimes and like yell at the police officers, like, stop dropping these people off here. <laughs> like, we don't want them. <laughs> it was like an ongoing issue. It doesn't seem like that's that would be legal policing. No, and there's a lot of people working really, really hard on um, putting together complaints and right. going about it that way because, yeah, there was a lot that happened out there over the summer, and, yeah, that was not not legal. <laughs> right, okay. okay. Did you get any charges um, from Ferry Creek? Not out at Ferry Creek, okay. no. Okay. So, okay. How, I'm wondering... Um, I wonder how, how, there were over a thousand arrests, right, at Ferry Creek since, there's been more since. Yeah. Do you know approximately how many of those turned into charges? I, I don't know. You don't know? No. It'd be interesting to find out. Okay. After Ferry Creek, what did you do? Uh, so after my first time there, I 
I was going to be going back to school. And I just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, what? I, I just experienced all this. All these people that I love are still out there doing this work. And I'm just going to be sitting in a classroom all day? Like, for what? Like, this is happening right now. And I thought about it for a really, really long time. Um, like, when I was out at Fairy Creek as well, I just sat in the forest and thought about it for a while. I quit my job. I dropped my classes. And... Yeah, spent a bit more time out at Fairy Creek and then also started doing some more work in the city. Uh, and now I, my original plan was then to go back to school for the winter, but now I'm working even more full time right. on this. Because the work's not done. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, not safe done. To go back, it's not safe to go back to school just yet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And it, I, I would argue you're getting an incredible education. I've learned right now. so much it's, through this, um, yeah you know, learning about how toxic the system is and what the system really is. Like we've lived inside Plato's cave or whatever, <laughs> looking at the shadow puppets and now you're just like, holy shit, like our state is so violent. Yeah. And it is all about extracting as many resources from the land as possible. And who cares how many people get hurt in the, you know, in the process. Um, it's a, it's, it's incredibly psychopathic. Tell us about your next arrests. Cause I'm assuming that the next arrests are, have some charges cause they yes, can, in, when you're in the do. forest and you're hidden, they can just be like, we're going to kick you around for a little bit and then take you to a post office and then drop you off. But when you're in a city, it's, you know, people are seeing this, right? So, and you're, you're really, yeah, you're getting exactly. in the way now of people going to work. So, <laughs> yeah. So the first time I was arrested in the city was back in October. And I actually, I remember seeing a, a post on Instagram from Extinction Rebellion that said they needed arrestables for some actions. And, you know, I'd been to so many marches where people just walk around on the sidewalk and then go home after. And I was just so done with that. And like, I, when I went to Fairy Creek, I was willing to risk arrest. That was a risk that I was like willing to take and then it didn't end up happening, or I, I didn't end up getting charged. So I saw that call, and I was like, I could do that. <laughs> so I came out, and the first action I actually went to, I was not intending on being arrested that day. I thought I was just going to drop by and like meet some of the people, see who I had been like talking to on Instagram, see what everything was about. Um, and then when we get to the intersection, Lady Chainsaw is there, and just stays in the road and I'm like well I'm not gonna go go to the side of the road now right so just for the listeners tell us uh who Lady Chainsaw is Lady Chainsaw is a total badass uh they were out at Fairy Creek for a while I think that day they had just gotten out of the hospital and came straight to this action um like in their wheelchair just they're such an incredible powerful person who I really respect so basically, the police tell everybody to leave, and almost everybody leaves except for um, Lady Chainsaw and the small kind of group of elders. And I'm this white kid, and I'm like, okay, if these people can stand here and, and you know stand up for this, yeah, I am sure as hell going to stand alongside them. It would seem disrespectful for anybody to leave. <laughs> That's what it, it yeah. really felt that way for me. And like, I, I don't have anything against all the people who did leave because, mm -hmm. you know, that's a big, yeah. it's a big thing to stand there while the police are telling you to leave. 
but I, in my heart, I was like, okay, I, I'm not gonna stand at the sidelines and watch this happen. I'm, I'm gonna stay here. Yeah, I was arrested. I was carried out of the road. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the first, the first time I was arrested. Right. Okay. And so then you're you're given a ride to the police station. Did you spend any time in in a cell, or was that just they just filled out some paperwork and then left? That it was pretty quick. We just yeah. sort of sat and sat on the bench for a little bit, did the paperwork, got released. There were a bunch of people waiting outside with like snacks and songs and right. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. So different than what anyone would kind of think of if they think of you know being arrested, going to jail, like yeah. It's such a mystifying process if you've never been through it. It's like, what is it? Because we all see arrests on television and we see jail on television, but you know, it's really interesting to see what that is. It's a ride in an unpleasant little box and then some paperwork and then you go and then you get all caught up in the whole bureaucracy of the court system after that. Yeah, and I mean, for a lot of people, they don't have the privilege of it being that simple. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more risk and a lot more trauma involved for a lot of people. Uh, so for me, as someone who does have the privilege yeah. to be able to do that, um, it feels almost kind of like a responsibility. It feels like this is something that I have the privilege to do, so I kind of have the responsibility to use that. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the... to the. You've had a really big one. So how many... So you've had... So this is four arrests now. How many arrests in total have you had? Uh, six in total. Six in total. Four with like charges. Four with charges. Okay, so let's let's talk about. There's a recent one that was fairly traumatizing for you, correct? Yeah, I, I'd say it was. Um, at first, I thought I was pretty fine about it, but um, it was definitely an experience I wasn't emotionally prepared for going into it. Uh, but basically, I. It was with a group called Sable Growth, which I'm, I'm helping to coordinate. And we shut down the bridge. And three of us, we sat down and we'd had our hands glued to the road so that we could stay there a bit longer. And you know, again, like really young people. Um, my friend was 19, the other, my other friend there was only 24. Uh, so it was us three blocking the bridge. And I had been given conditions at the my arrest before that that I couldn't block the road, so I knew that it was going to be a bit more complicated this time and I might be held longer. I was not prepared to be held for about 36 hours was how long I was there. And I was held in a little room with the lights on the whole time. Nobody else there, nothing to do. Freezing cold, they like barely brought any food. They didn't even bring my friend toilet paper. She was held for um, the same amount of time as I was. And uh, yeah, it was what, not a good time. Is there a washroom in there? Yeah, there's like a little metal toilet in the corner. But my friend didn't get any toilet paper. OK. okay and, this, and you guys are 19. Uh, yeah, I'm 19. 19. My friend was held the same amount of time as me. She was 24. Tw 24. Okay, so you're in a tiny little room with a metal toilet for 36 hours. That's a day and a half. When, um, barely any food, freezing cold, nobody asking if you wanted a blanket, nobody, and lights on. 
Yeah, the lights were on. Honestly, I think that was kind of the hardest part was not knowing how much time was passing and yeah. not knowing what time it was. Because um, they didn't let you keep your phone or your watch, obviously. No, no, I didn't have anything. Um, I, the snacks they would bring would come in these little paper bags. So I would like rip the paper bags into like little squares and fold paper cranes out of them. Oh my god! So that's how I like spent my time. I think my friend counted all the bricks in her room. It was like right. two hundred eighty something. That was the worst part. Was yeah, and yeah. and that's what I hear from, you know, people who have been successful in long times uh, spent in solitary confinement. Find you know find things to keep their mind busy for. But that's, you know, so once you've been in there for kind of five, six hours and nobody's checking on you or giving you any information, I guess I would start to think like, is how long am I going to be here? Am I going to be here for years? Is, is this, you know, is there any law protecting from me from this? Where's my lawyer? Where's, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm it's I'm lucky enough to have a lawyer. Right. Um, Did they contact your lawyer for you? Yeah, I was. I I, I contacted my lawyer. After how was, long? Uh, I have no idea because I, I had no idea what time it was. But I'd say like a good few hours. A good few hours. Okay. Um, and kind of before that, I was sort of hearing them, uh, just like the people working in the jail, talking about the possibility of us being held on remand. So that would mean basically being held until our trial. Uh, so I had no idea how long that would be. Potentially months sometimes. Oh, it's a month be because, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been going through the process myself and you go to court and they're like, well, we're not ready yet. There's somebody else who was arrested with me. That person's lawyer wasn't ready. So then they put mine off for another two weeks and then you go again. They're like, oh, we're not really ready yet. There's yeah. another two weeks. So it's been months. So yeah, like four months. Yeah, so in my head, not really knowing what remand would look like what exactly it meant in my mind I was just like hey well, I'm staying in this cold little room with the lights on forever now <laughs> uh it's just a weird environment really it's... dehumanizing for for everybody involved one thing that really stands out to me actually it was like there's a little thing that hangs outside the the window on your door so the police walk by every so often and like check on what you're doing and write it down and it was in like probably the first few hours that I was there. I came out and just like looked at the paper, like what was on it. And one of the options that they can put for like what you're doing while you're in there is crying. And I remember looking at that and reading that and thinking like, how can someone walk by and see somebody crying and just like write it down and leave? And that was just like so, and like after being there for a while, it, I guess, became so much more like normalized in my mind that right. like they're so separate from the people who are there as opposed to just being like all humans meant to look out for each other. But in that moment I just remember seeing that and thinking like how can you see somebody crying and not check on them? Well what else was on the list? It was like uh Did you feel like thinking like I gotta find something that's not on this list and see what well, happens. They can, they can write whatever they they can write whatever they want. It was just like shorthand for like different things. Oh, okay. So, so it wasn't like oh, so I was kind of picturing like a, a chart where they had like the things that people <laughs> normally do, like cry, you know. Uh, I guess there were like the common ones at the bottom that there's like shorthand for, and like that was one of them. And oh my god! Oh, so I guess in police school somewhere, 
they uh, go over what the shorthand is for what people are doing in these little torture cells. Yeah, I've made, it made me really wonder, like, there's no way any of them have any idea what it's like to sit in a room alone for that long, not knowing what time it is, not knowing what's happening. No, I don't think, I, I, I think very, I mean, I have a tiny sliver of that knowledge because I was transported in one of those small police wagons. It's a little box and yeah. it's, you know, you get in there, you've got your hands, you're handcuffed behind your back. There's no seatbelt and you're just moving. And so I knew approximately how far I was going to go. And so then I started in, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, there's one turn, there's another turn, there's another turn. And then after a while I lost track of the turns and I was like, I don't know where I am. And it's so dislocating. And that was apparently, that was a 12 minute ride and it felt wow. like two hours yeah so I can imagine what 36 hours would would feel like yeah and like I was going into that in a in a good headspace as well you know with a good support system outside yeah. um and I could hear some of the other people who are being held there um just like crying or yelling or just obviously in need of help and just thinking like this is where people are put who need help. Yeah. Like, this is where people are yes. like, if they're having a crisis, if they're yeah. on drugs, like this is where they're put. If they're having a psychotic breakdown. Yeah. You're hearing screams, um, people who are in solitary confinement, which is known to be torture. Like, let's just get that off the table. Solitary confinement is torture to human beings. So you are being tortured <laughs> and you can hear the other people who are also being tortured. And uh, then what happens? Uh, so I had to go to court basically for like a bail hearing where they decide whether or not I was being held on remand. And it went on for three or four hours. Um, which oh, sorry, what do you do for three or four hours? We've got a 19-year-old who was sitting in a road to save the forests and has been held for 36 hours in solitary confinement. And now you're having a bit, why, why would that take three or four hours? That doesn't make any sense to me. There was a lot that they read out, um, a lot of kind of like back and forth. Um, the Crown was really pushing for me to be held on remand. And then the judge just... Do you know, do you know, is the, who, was, do you know who the Crown was? Leno? Leno? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leno. Yeah, yeah. No, no Leno, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... There was that, and it, like the judge was just sort of going back and forth and uh, trying to decide what to do. And then they ended up taking some time to like take care of some other stuff, so she could like think it through, I guess. Um, and then I came back after she'd made her decision. They went back over every single thing that had been said previously, and then she went on to kind of like justify her reasoning. And this went on for like over an hour again, me knowing that she already had her decision made, but not knowing what it was yet. Just like standing there, listening. <laughs> Do you know who the judge was? Who was the judge? I don't remember, the, don't judge's remember the judge's name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it like it really. I had no idea what decision was going to be made through the whole thing. It was such a roller coaster listening to it. Um, but eventually, it was decided that I wouldn't be held under man this time. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was so I was there was like a lot of rules that I was left with. Um 
and then had to pay like $1,000 a surety to be released. But then my friend who was there as well didn't have to pay that, and she'd broken like two conditions. Um, so what is, what is it that you think is, is, is about you that warranted? I don't It was a different judge. Oh. So it just really goes to show that there's not really any consistency there at all. I know, and this is like blowing my... Like, you know you see on TV, like, oh, this judge is really harsh. And that, but you think that... It can't be like that in real life. Like, there, it, there's a, there are laws that are supposed to be applied equally. Yeah. So, you know, and I even, I think, I'm really discovering what happens with all this, and I'm thinking, or what I'm learning, is that some judges are sent in to some cases because they're known for harsh sentences or whatever, and that might be in the best interest of deterring the public from, from doing certain things. But then who's, so it's not even the judges that are in control of this system. Who is it that's sending the judges and they're like, these guys are getting fucking out of control. We need yeah. Fitzgerald or whatever, oh, right? Yeah. Like who makes that decision? Who sends the judge in? That's, that's, that's what we got to find yeah. out. <laughs> that's what we got to find out. You got to fo follow the trail of power. Okay, so you finally... You finally get out, um, and uh, now what's going on? Uh, back to work, basically. Back to work. <laughs> yeah, okay. missed a few days. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot well, to do. Yeah, well, you're doing very, very important work. Um, okay, so uh, Save All Growth. You're part of Save All Growth, and why don't you say a little bit about your work with Save All Growth? So for the last, uh, for, I guess since like early November... I've been working on this pretty much every day, all day, every day. Um, I have never been working so hard on anything in my entire life. I've never felt so stressed in my entire life. Um, but at the same time, it's just being surrounded by really great people, working alongside really great people for something as big as this. Um, it's like unimaginable pressure, but also... Uh, we, it truly feels like I'm doing everything that I can and I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. I'm doing the best thing that I can be doing right now, uh, which helps, but it's definitely still really hard. And you shouldn't have to be doing it because you're young and you should be, you know, partying and going on spring break trips and, you know, learning some really cool things from some really cool professors. Yeah. But instead, you're getting arrested and being tortured. It's a life that I definitely grieve a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because on one hand, I'm so kind of fortunate to be able to be doing the work that I'm doing right now. I know that, um, you know, if we pass all these thresholds that scientists are saying, we're coming really close to crossing and it is too late. I can still say, like, okay, I did everything I could when yeah. I could do it. And, you know, I can kind of move through guilt-free and transition to, like, I don't know, doing as much work in my community as I can right. um, to help get... I don't know. I don't really want to... Well, that's the thing, right? Like, to get through what? Like, we, we have no idea how... It's, well, yeah. it's going to probably come fast and... And, and furious. Like, and damage control. Yeah. Recovery. Like, I, yeah. Might learn to fight forest fires or something, or build some more sandbag walls, that sort of thing. But I'll know that when I could do something, I did. Um, 
but process whole grieving process. <laughs> I know. Of this What's going through thing. my mind right now is what the judge said when the Brunette River Six were sentenced, and we're talking like a 21-year-old student all the way up to a 79-year-old woman who is who was praying. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so this this church lady, uh, and I'm going back to the judge saying. I mean, I wasn't in the courtroom, but this is this is what I'm hearing, uh, that they must be punished and that they, if they wanted to have their voice heard, they could vote. Yeah. <laughs> and as somebody who spent an awful lot of time canvassing for the NDP government before they got into, into power, because I spent a, I spent a good amount of time with them on picket lines, because uh, I'm a teacher, and they, they were always there telling us what a better job we're doing. I was so, it's like, okay, I'm so excited that they're now in power, and then it's like, okay, well, they've just become the same assholes as we're in power. You can't tell the difference. It's like the end of Animal Farm. I mean, the, the animals are looking in the window, and they, they can't tell which are the pigs and which are the humans, and you're just like, okay, so voting doesn't work. Campaigning yeah. doesn't work. Signing petitions definitely doesn't, go, doesn't work. Marching, used to think that worked. We're like thousands and thousands of people on the street. Okay, clearly that doesn't work because that happened like a massive march like five years ago. Um, so this is truly all that we have left. And yeah, okay, is there an action coming up? What's going on? Uh, yeah, so we're planning on starting again March 21st. There's about 10 countries around the world who are all um, kind of working together. There's like skill shares, info sharing type um, Stuff and we're all doing similar tactics internationally, and it's all going to be starting again late March. Right. And so let's say somebody out there was listening. And they thought, you know what? Um, I could get arrested. I could help these these kids out and take a little off their plate by getting arrested myself. Um, what could they do? Uh, probably the best thing to do would be to email us, uh, saveoldgrowth at protonmail.com, okay. and then yeah, we can get you to a talk, to a training. Um, you could learn some more about the campaign. There's, there's really stuff for everybody. Right, and if even people who are out there who are interested in getting involved but are not quite ready to to get arrested, just that there are non-arrestable roles as well in all of these. Correct? There are. Yeah, yeah definitely yeah. the um, the focus, especially for people who have similar privilege to me, yeah. who are able to go through the system and be treated much better and listened to a lot more. Um, the, the idea of arrests and actions that are big enough where you're put, um, or like you're risking arrest, like that's definitely what we're, we're aiming for. Right. But if you feel like you're not comfortable with that, there's definitely yeah. a lot of work to be done for everybody. <laughs> it's interesting because on, on one hand, um, being arrested and going through the court process, it's generally not as big of a deal as people think it is. Um, but then something can happen like, oh, you're held for 36 hours and you weren't expecting to, or maybe you got hurt, or maybe you were treated poorly. Uh, it can be really bad. And I think what I really want people to know is like, it's not a decision that anybody is making or should be making lightly. Mm -hmm. It's still a big deal and we're doing it anyways because the alternative is so much scarier. Like, I... I'm terrified of going back out there. I'm, I'm terrified of the police now because of the things that I've been through. I'm terrified of the idea of sitting in a cell again for that long. And I would still risk it again because what terrifies me more is the idea of not doing anything. Um, 
and you know, seeing my hometown burn down, seeing it underwater again, seeing my friends suffer. Um, you know, a lot of people around the world already are dealing with these things, and that scares me infinitely more. Yeah, I agree. All right, cool. Okay, anything else you want to say? Anything you want to get off your chest or? Yeah, the idea of arrests is kind of uh, like con controversial tactic in in most circles. So for like the general public, moderate, that sort of thing, it's like we'll just do a march, a petition, just vote. Uh, and then for the more kind of typical activist sort of community, it's like well, if you've been arrested ten times, obviously you aren't running fast enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Uh, I guess I just want to talk about why, for myself personally, I feel like being arrested is the most effective yeah, tactic. Absolutely. Because I think there's definitely a place for, you know, doing big things and not getting caught for them. Uh, I think that when you stand by what you're doing and you show your face, you say, this is my name, this is who I am, this is what I'm risking, and this is why, people can see that and it communicates to the public in a way that, um, I guess in a way that different sorts of actions don't. Uh, and it's a much higher risk for yourself and not everybody's able to make that risk and I wanna really acknowledge that, that I don't think everybody out there should uh, you know, sit down on the road with their face showing and like take pictures and send it to the news and be like, my name's Joe and I'm getting arrested this many times for this cause because like, that's a big deal. That does change your life. There's no just going back after that, you know? But I feel like there's also a lot of power in that and a lot of power that I've found through that. And I really hope that that can kind of communicate to the public. Um, you know, these people are risking all of this and they stand by it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I have to say that that is in, this is the second podcast that I've, uh, the second interview that I've done, but I've met um, so many people involved in this movement, and I have never met people who I respect more than the people that I've met in the last, in the last year. Um, and sometimes I'm in a room with these people and I think, wow, these are the bravest, this is the bravest and most intelligent room that I've ever been in. And it's also an incredibly moral room, which is also rare. You know, there is not one asshole in the room. <laughs> and that's quite magical to me. Um, so I just, I can't tell you how... I'm, I, I didn't know you that well because I think we've we've seen each other, we've met a couple of times, but we haven't um, spent any time in a, a long time in a room together. So I just want to say how incredibly impressed I am with, with, with who you are and the spirit that you obviously have, the, how intelligent you are. And, um, you know, I, I know that if we make any strides at all, it's because... Um, people like you exist and are leading in the community. And yeah, I just thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Put them on in your little metal boxes.